Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the Resilience Advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly SLO and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 15, Disasters Will Happen. It's scary to think that, but it's true. And maybe it's better to acknowledge that rather than be completely shocked when they do happen. If we are aware that it is possible for a disaster to occur at any time, then we can be more prepared for the repercussions, right, Evan? Yes, that's true. But in terms of buildings and structures, we should push for making them more resilient as there is a difference between preparedness and mitigation. Check out Amanda Syok-Hertzfeld's interview. She brings up a really powerful analogy between the two. Amanda Syok-Hertzfeld. My name is Amanda Syok, and I work for FEMA Region 10, which covers Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. And I run the earthquake and tsunami programs here in the region. Um, My background is in mitigation planning, and um, with a, I guess, an undergrad in English with a minor in geology. So I'm kind of all over the board. Um, but what it means is that I'm really uh, interested in geology, a bit of a rock nerd. Um, but I also am really interested in translating science into action uh, um, in a way that benefits um, both the built and social environment. I am a bit of a rock nerd too. I used to collect rocks and shells as a kid, and taking the geology class at Cal Poly really brought things to life. Amanda, what do you do specifically at FEMA? I don't know much about FEMA's work on the pre-disaster side. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so uh, the the post-disaster world is only a sliver of what FEMA does. We spend a lot of time in our communities, working with our states, our local government, our tribal governments, um, as well as the the private sector, uh, helping to understand what hazards uh, these groups are vulnerable to, as well as how they can reduce that vulnerability. So we do a lot of hazard mapping or communicating maps into uh, risk assessments for the built and social environment. So looking at what structures, for example, are um, vulnerable to earthquake shaking or to flooding or to landslide hazards. Um, and then in order for a, a government to receive FEMA grant funding. So this is this is different than post-disaster funding, but in order to receive grant funding, um, most jurisdictions have to have a hazard mitigation plan, which is where they've gone through and identified what infrastructure is vulnerable to different hazards and what they want to do to reduce that vulnerability. I see. You kind of have to earn FEMA's trust by showing that you are ready to make changes before disaster strikes. 
That makes sense. You know, there's a common theme I've heard listening to the past Resilience Advantage interviews. It's that working directly with the community makes your job have more impact and feel more rewarding. What goes into making a local hazard mitigation plan? Yeah, so that that's wonderful. Um, in order to do a risk assessment um, f- for you know a, a jurisdiction, um, you have to look at um, what hazards you're vulnerable to. Say you overlay um, you know your seismic hazard map, for example. Then you want to look at what buildings are vulnerable and. You know, sometimes that can be done with just footprints or, you know, even using Google Earth and say, well, look, our whole downtown is in this area. Um, but you can also do a building inventory, which is where you use, generally it's GIS, uh, but you're actually looking at, you know, what year were these buildings built? Um, who occupies these buildings? You know, what type of foundation is on these buildings? It sounds like a lot of information and data needs to be collected in order to construct a solid hazard mitigation plan. How is this information helpful? You can collect a ton of information uh, to dive deeper into what those vulnerabilities are. So, you know, a modern building, for example, would be less vulnerable to seismic shaking than, say, a unreinforced masonry building. Um, Using an inventory can help identify what buildings could be more vulnerable based off of the year they were built or what their foundation type is, for example. Developing a building inventory is an allowable expense um, through a hazard mitigation planning grant and is a great way to make sure that your hazard mitigation plan is as informed as possible. What specifications do these mitigation plans need to meet? Are they hard to reach? There is a requirement that plans um, identify um, the latest science data, um, as well as integrate existing plans and information. So say you're doing a, a seismic risk assessment in your mitigation plan and the USGS has a new seismic map, you're supposed to use that in your mitigation plan. Um, but also if a community has a capital improvement plan, for example, so how they're going to update their infrastructure, that should be brought into that hazard mitigation planning process to do analysis on how can we update or reduce our vulnerability um, in conjunction with our existing uh, infrastructure update and expenditure planning. I could imagine that FEMA is involved with other systems, water, electricity, air, since it's all connected with the structure in some way or another. Is this correct? Yeah, so uh, FEMA has, you know, we often have our own jargon that we use, but FEMA's really big on community lifelines. So, you know, structures are important, but if water can't get into that building, if electricity can't get into that building, if there's no more cell service, um, you know, if the sewer system is down, the whole structure is no longer as beneficial, right? Because without electricity, um, you know, you're, you're not functioning at, at full capacity anymore. So FEMA is really focused on helping to connect all of these systems into the resilience conversation. So rather than just looking at structures, we want to look at, you know, the electric grid. 
Um, it doesn't matter how strong your building is if the electricity is not going to be working. So yeah, infrastructure is, um, you know, it, it's the whole community. It includes wastewater. It includes road networks and bridges and um, communications, as well as things like clean water. And um, honestly, there, there's been a lot of talk about um, social infrastructure as well. So what glue holds a community together that isn't built um, and how do we help maintain the resilience of that um, before disaster so that, you know, it's an inconvenience and not, not a disastrous event. How does FEMA bring all of these systems together into a disaster mitigation plan? Are there priorities? Does one set of vulnerabilities get considered first? A few things here. The hazard mitigation planning process isn't, um, I'm going to say it's not FEMA's process. FEMA wants the communities to go through a risk assessment and develop mitigation strategies that say what they're going to do. But that process, the only requirement there is that uh, communities include neighboring jurisdictions. So for example, if Seattle is gonna develop their hazard mitigation plan, they need to include um, opportunities for both the county as well as neighboring jurisdictions to provide feedback and comments on that, that planning process, right? Hazards don't care about jurisdictional boundaries. If Seattle is impacted by something, it's not just gonna be Seattle, it's gonna be the, the whole region. The planning process also requires public and stakeholder engagement. You know, you want to include, um, you know, your, your business owners, for example, might have different opinions than um, your school districts on community priorities. And it's really important that every voice in that community has an opportunity to share what their priorities are, what their concerns are, and, you know, what they think resilience means. Um, and it's the, the process of facilitating those discussions and coming to a, a consensus and agreement on what um, the best mitigation strategies should be. What if all those voices don't come together and there isn't a hazard mitigation plan in place? So if they don't have a hazard mitigation plan in place after a disaster, FEMA does generally come in and try and help them to get their plan updated so that they, they can become eligible for additional recovery funding. So we're, we're not an agency that wants to leave people stranded. But that being said, uh, there is a level of responsibility that's expected of local governments to be making informed decisions when it comes to where they're building infrastructure and um, being aware of what is vulnerable and, and trying to reduce that vulnerability. With all the technicalities involved, how can a community go about starting a hazard mitigation plan? Where can they get more information on how to do that? Great question. So there's actually a ton of resources. Um, FEMA's website to start with um, has guides on best practices for mitigation planning. There's the Community Mitigation Handbook that goes through each element and describes the best way to do it. And there's templates. There's also um, you know, your, your state hazard mitigation officer, so each state has one hazard mitigation officer, um, they can help to bring in training. So both the state and uh, FEMA partner to do training for jurisdictions um, on how to develop hazard mitigation plans and to connect you with uh, local resources within the community for developing that. You know, there, there's certainly nothing wrong with using a, a consultant to, to help with your plan. 
Um, but it's important that the consultant really engages the community in that planning process and that it's not just, you know, checking boxes. We don't really care about the plan itself. It's really more about the planning process and facilitating those conversations between stakeholders and really, um, you know, developing some ownership over what is vulnerable and what the desired solutions are to reduce that vulnerability. It's all about starting the conversation. We have to open people's minds about this subject and get them thinking. How can a community get in contact with their state hazard mitigation officer? In addition to your state hazard mitigation officer, each FEMA region has community planners that can help link jurisdictions with additional information and guidance. The American Planning Association has an entire you know, group dedicated to hazard mitigation planning. They link up with environmental planners and land use planners. If your jurisdiction um, and you are you know, really struggling with your hazard mitigation plan, the local APA chapter is a really strong resource. So with FEMA's hazard mitigation grant program, what percentage of the project is being paid for? Great question. So um, our mitigation grant program is generally 2575, so a 25% uh, cost share from the local community and 75% FEMA. Um, but that being said, if it's a, a small or impoverished or disadvantaged community, um, that can be reduced to a 10% cost share. Um, and then, you know, there FEMA's really big on encouraging public-private partnerships right now. So, um, you know, understanding that some jurisdictions just don't have the money to meet that match, um, exploring options with public-private partnerships to help meet that match are certainly an option. Wow, having 75% of the costs covered. That must be such a huge relief for the community. So are mitigation and preparedness the same thing? If not, how are they different? People often confuse mitigation with preparedness. I like to describe it that preparing is being ready for things to be broken. And um, so that's like having a first aid kit, for example, or extra food and water. Um, so it prepares you for handling injuries um, or preparing to not have water. Mitigation, on the other hand, uh, says let's avoid those damages in the first place. So like let's prevent those injuries from happening. What a great analogy. So mitigation focuses on avoiding damage in the first place, while preparedness assumes that damage is going to happen and gets ready for it. Building codes are really a bare minimum. And, you know, I'm having work done on my house and, you know, I hear, well, you know, we're, we're building to code. But, um, you know, my question is like, well, what is the code and can, can we do better? So I like to use the example of like an old Ford Pinto, right? So like it's roadworthy, but is that the car that you want to be in in an accident? Like I would rather be in something modern with, with airbags. So, um, you know, looking at more resilient codes um, that we can implement in a community so that we're building stronger and we're building smarter um, and we're making smarter land use decisions rather than just rebuilding back to the way things were before a disaster. So why don't we have stricter codes implemented to ensure that a community is resilient? What do you think is getting lost in translation between the codes and the building owners? So that that's actually a pretty tough question. The information collection process 
there's a lot of that, especially related to building codes. You know, there's the ratings that are done looking at communities. You know, what codes are they enforcing? Um, where, you know, are they, they meeting the minimum standards? Are there places where they could exceed to um, improve uh, resilience to, to hazards? Um, but when it comes to the education aspect of your question, we spend a lot of money on educating people about, um, you know, whether it's drop cover and hold on or develop a preparedness kit. But there's a gap there. How do we turn the hazard reduction information into something actionable that goes beyond preparedness? I think that is kind of where the, the building code issue comes into play. And that's, you know, yes, we have minimum codes, but changing building codes can send ripples through the the building industry and you know we're not trying to impact anyone's bottom line here and you know i understand um you know especially during the pandemic we've seen the, the cost of lumber and and building costs skyrocket nationally we need to have this conversation where everyone is actively listening and compassionately listening, right? Like we we clearly have this issue where we need to be building better and we need to be building stronger and there are costs associated with that. Um, but we do need to take a look at not only the cost of building a building, but what are the maintenance costs and what are the, you know, the, what is the lifetime costs of, of those buildings? What efforts are being done to educate the community now? I think it's really important that when we educate people on their vulnerability, we need to spend less time on the doom and gloom and destruction phase, which seems to be, um, so like in, in the Pacific Northwest where I'm located, whenever there's talk about Cascadia subduction zone earthquake, we so quickly jump to how many people are gonna die? How many injuries are there gonna be? How many roads are gonna be damaged? And it's just doom and gloom. So how can we flip the script to make this a more engaging topic? What we're not doing is talking to communities and educating them on, we can reduce these damages, all of these things that you're planning on responding to, we can mitigate those by upgrading our built environment. Um, you know, how do we um, increase the resilience of our existing infrastructure? And how do we make sure new infrastructure is built stronger so that we don't have to plan for the response to damages here? There, there's a, certainly a lot of room to improve on that messaging, but FEMA can't do it alone. FEMA's working with HUD um, to, to try and improve that. We work with the EPA, um, but we really need you know, more buy-in and more engagement. Can the government do anything to engage the community more? Where are these conversations happening? The National Association of Insurance Commissioners we have meetings with them all the time to talk about this this exact issue. Um, but we need more support and engagement um, with our construction and, and development community as well. I mean, they're the ones with the, the deeper pockets that um, don't necessarily want to see building codes change. You know, it's a really important conversation that as a nation, we really need to talk about what is our bare minimum for standards for buildings? And, um, you know, current codes for seismic don't look at performance. They look only at building collapse. So modern buildings are designed to not kill you in an earthquake, but that doesn't mean that they're designed to be functional. 
So, you know, while you might not die, if we have to demo all of the buildings and rebuild them, like what's the carbon footprint of that? And what type of economic losses do we incur because of that decision to not build better buildings? The challenges of hazard mitigation go a lot deeper than I thought. Are there any other organizations that help out with this besides FEMA? FEMA's Building Sciences program does amazing work. You know, we work with many other organizations through like the American Society of Civil Engineers, where we do go in after an event and study, you know, what, what happened, what failed and why, and how do we fix this? Is the information and data collected by FEMA available for the public to view? So if you go to FEMA's building science page um, on the, the FEMA website, there's so many reports on, you know, what happened and why and, you know, what the, the recommended um, mitigation practices are. And this goes back to that, that education piece that you talked about. How do we get communities to take that information and use it and actually apply it in their jurisdictions. Um, you know, disasters will happen. It's not a matter of, of if, it's, it's when. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that um, between the, the hazard mitigation grant program funding and between the infrastructure bill um, that, you know, we can get government to move faster than geologic speed at this uh, <laughs> geologic time um, currently so that we can get these projects, these mitigation projects implemented um, and bridge that gap between uh, learning from disasters and actually um, implementing that into risk reduction projects. Evan, Amanda's interview really brought up some good points. My big takeaway is that there is a difference between preparedness and mitigation. Her message was that preparedness is knowing that a building could fail and being ready for the consequences, whereas mitigation is reducing the possibility of failure from the start. That's right. And it's great to see public sector officials like Amanda and our federal government agencies like FEMA working so hard to encourage mitigation and make it affordable, particularly in places at high risk of natural disasters. Cool. So who's going to be our next interview? Let's switch from what the government is doing to promote resilience to how philanthropic groups and foundations are recognizing that it's not enough just to come in after a catastrophe and provide aid. It's actually more effective to fund projects that make our communities resilient before disaster strikes. Camilla Seth is the managing director of the New Venture Fund, a philanthropic organization working on global sustainable finance. Great, looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Amanda Sayak Hertzfeld and FEMA, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with Camilla Seth, the manager of the Finance Hub in New York City.